This is Dr. David Pomeroy, your host on ADHD Focus. I wanted to remind you that the show is not intended to be a recommendation for diagnosis or treatment of any condition for any specific person. Please consult your mental health professional or doctor managing your ADHD or mental health issues about any diagnosis or treatment-related information that you hear on the show. Refer your ADHD provider to the show if he or she would like more information. Got an exciting show today talking with Elaine Taylor-Klaus, who is the founder of ImpactParents.com. She has developed a parent coaching model, which is wonderful um, for all of us parents raising complex kids. And we'll be talking about the model and then how to apply it with children of different ages. So no matter when you're starting to use it, it can help and work for kids of every age. Elaine, welcome back to the program. We've done a couple podcasts before, and I'm glad to be able to start on this one. Thank you. It is truly always a pleasure to be in conversation with you, so I'm looking forward to it. And I should mention that uh, Elaine's second book was published last year, the year that wasn't except for some things, The Essential Guide to Raising Complex Kids. And it is, I think, one of the better thought-out books. You can see the experience um, of working with her model and developing it in a very well set out book. So I commend that to everybody's attention. Thank you. So Elaine, you, you talk about having the impact model. What uh, does that consist of? You know, when, when I became a coach and I was trying to just get my head around raising complex kids, what I discovered, I thought I was just getting support for myself. And what I discovered is that I was becoming a much better parent and that it wasn't rocket science. And so when I met Diane Dempster, my business partner now for, for a decade, we began to look at what was it about coaching that was making such a difference in our family dynamics. And, you know, a lot of it was good communication skills and, you know, having conversations differently. But we began to look at the process. We're both very process-oriented. And I think when you deal with, with executive function challenges and, and, and other kinds of process-based conditions, um, pro- it becomes really important to understand not just what we need to do, but how do we get ourselves to do it. And so we began to look at it, and we we gleaned, we identified the process in coaching that was making such a difference. And so we decided to try to capture it, and we created this thing called the impact model. And this was back now in 2011, I think. And um, we've looked at it many times over the years, and we've not really changed it. We've tweaked the language in it, but we haven't changed it at all because it's it's essentially it it's kind of the the manifestation of the coaching methodology, the coaching approach, which is almost Socratic. It's curiosity based. It's about um, inquiry and understanding. And coaching is is a method that's about really about empowering people to take ownership of their lives. And so when you're parenting complex kids, what you want most of all is to empower your kids to start taking ownership. You just don't know how. And poach, coaching, I think, gives parents a vehicle, and the coaching model gives parents a great vehicle for beginning to understand how to implement change and ultimately to teach their kids how to implement change. Yeah, because we 
want to, I see the ultimate goal of parents is to be able to have your kid leave home to college or whatever and know that they can manage their lives, manage themselves yeah. pretty well. Um, yeah, we, we actually want to raise adults, not kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we're yeah. just supervising them in the process of becoming adults. And the impact model is really great for that because it's it's a way to create micro changes. And it's the little changes. You know, you've seen Zoom in the media and all of the research that's come out in recent years about tiny habits. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a whole bunch of conversations about it out in the psychology space. But at the end of the day, change happens incrementally. Big change happens yeah. in tiny little ways. And that's what this impact model is about. It's about helping you make the small changes that ultimately begin to create the larger changes. So what are the what's the first step of that impact model? So we wanted to make it really super simple and easy to use. And, you know, as an adult with ADD, I have my own working memory challenges. So I will confess that it took me a little while to learn my own model. Um, and I had it up on the wall of my office for a long time before I actually memorized it. But we wanted it to be simple, 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 so that when parents were in the heat of the moment, when the water was boiling over and the kids were melting down, that, that they didn't have to go grab something out of a drawer and reference it, that they could, you know, turn to the model quickly. And so step one in the model is what we call taking aim. And that means to get really clear on the immediate change, the, the, the specific change you want to see. And as parents, we have a tendency to catastrophize, right? We can see all 50 things that need to be done. And if they don't do this, that, and the other, then they're not going to be able to, you know, have an apartment in their 20s. And we can fear forward like the best of them. And so we feel like we have to do everything now. And what taking aim does is it, is it lightens the load. It gives you permission as a parent to take aim on one thing at a time. And, yes, I know there are a 100 things that need to be done. But if you take mm-hmm. aim, if you get clear on one change you're really working on where your child begins to be part of collaborating in the conversation, where that's the one area where your child's beginning to become more independent, and you work together towards that, then when you achieve that, and you can do it much more easily if you're taking name on something very specific, then you can begin to expand and take aim on other things. So step one is taking aim very specifically. So, for example, instead of mornings, you might take aim on um, waking up or getting out of bed or brushing your teeth. One thing, yeah, you know, getting dressed. Exactly. But one thing at a time. And as a parent, we continue to scaffold everything else, and we invite our kids to become more independent in one area. Um, I'm thinking about a family I worked with years ago where uh, the dad was a lawyer and they were having a lot of friction in the mornings with a nine-year-old boy with ADHD. Mm. And, um, and we were just, the, we were taking aim on getting him out of bed. And when we got curious, so step two in the model is to collect information, gather data, get, I, I call it get curious, really understand mm. what's going on, Right. And when we, when we moved there, what we started noticing is the dad was standing at the door with his hand on his hip, if you can envision it, saying, get out of bed. And, and this nine-year-old boy who was very motivated by play and wanted connection and was not, was not responding well. And, you know, the long story short, as we coached around it, we began to figure out the days that the kid was successful getting out of bed was when the dog pounced on him on the bed. Uh-huh. And so then we started realizing this kid wanted some sensory input as well. He was really seeking physical connection. 
And so the, the change the dad made as we got through, so then step three is problem solving. We'll get to that in a second. Well, let me, let me do that. So step two was getting curious. We looked at all the situation, everything that was going on. Step three is planning. And when you're planning in, in our model, it's not as simple as sit down and create a plan, but it's, it's looking at a, at a plan through the, through the lens of four different cornerstones, if you will, focal point. We, there are a lot of words that we use for them. We've changed over the years, but they're like cornerstones. So you want to look at, at uh, go ahead. Circle back to one thing. Yeah. Um, you say the what worked was the dog jumping on the bed. How did the connection then come up? Oh, it's sensory input. What was that? That was, it was just an insight. It became really clear. Um, and what we discovered was we started looking at when else does this little boy respond well. He responded really well to being tickled. He loved to roll around and wrestle with his dad. He loved mm-hmm. to roll around with the, with the dog. And it became clear that this was a, a physical kid, that he had probably had a love language of touch, right? So we had to understand who this kid was in order to problem solve to help him come up with a strategy that was going to work for him. Yeah, and so looking at what's working instead of yes. trying to analyze what's, what's not. not, how come you aren't paying attention and all that stuff really just gets in the way. Yeah, exactly. You've really got to focus on, on what's working. I often say the solutions are in the successes because if mm-hmm. we can look to what is working, we can replicate that. And it's a much more positive way to focus than, it say, than, than that tendency we have to say, well, that didn't work and that didn't work. That's not very inspiring. So when we're problem solving, and that's really mostly what we're doing when we're trying to manage something like ADHD, is we're problem solving with a brain that's, that's with executive function that's sluggish and having a hard time getting at and getting going, right? Mm-hmm. We're doing what it is that's expected. We have to find the motivation. We have to find a connection. So then we're problem solving. So in order to problem solve, you've got to figure out what's the change you want, and you've got to really understand what's going on. So that's step one and step two. Then when we move into planning, it gets a little more complicated, but you can simplify it, right? So there are four cornerstones, and sometimes you may look at all four, sometimes just a couple of them, but to really understand those before you start putting a plan in place makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. And those four cornerstones, the first one is what we call activate the brain. We have to understand that this is happening in the brain, that the brain is sluggish, that there's an executive function issue going on, you know, and, and where the, what the brain's role is, is going to impact how we plan. If it's first thing in the morning and you have a child who's used to taking medication, anything that happens before their medication's on board, you're going to have to deal with it differently than you might after the medication is on board. You might have to right. think about how to activate the brain differently, right? So, or at the end of a school day, if you're looking at homework, if you've got a kid who's exhausted at the end of a day, you, you might need to get some, some physical activity or some protein on board. You might need to activate and engage the brain before you start asking him to do homework. So that's mm-hmm. where activate the brain comes in. And I look at not just activate, but activate in the direction you want, because kids may wake up. It's not time to get up yet, but, oh, yeah, I was doing this game or I was on this chapter in the book and they jump into doing that. The brain's activated, yeah. but not activated toward. Towards the direction. Whatever, yeah. It, exactly. And, and knowing that enables you to plan around it. 
right? If you know you have a kid, I, I one of my kids used to wake up and read in, in their bed for a long time. And mm-hmm. so we had to allow a certain amount of time for them to have that going on before we started moving them out of that and into other activity because mm-hmm. that's how they like to start their day. And how could you argue with somebody with a kid waking up and reading, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so one place to look when you're planning is activating the brain. The second place to look is what we call positivity, positive parenting. It's to really look at are we creating an environment, a condition of positive intent where, where they will be wanting to move towards something positive? Are we looking at the tone of our home? Are we looking at how we're having these conversations? Like really, um, really holding a positive framework for what's going on with them. And, and sometimes there's planning there. Sometimes that as parents is just making sure that we're making, that we're making sure we're creating a, a positive space for this problem solving to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of collaboration comes in here. We'll talk a little bit in a little bit about the phases of parenting and where that plays plays in. But this is kind of positivity has got a lot of collaboration here. And then the third place to look at is what we call shifting expectations. And, you know, when you've got kids with ADHD and other complex issues, you're generally dealing with kids who in some parts of their development, not all, but some, are experiencing, you know, a 30% developmental delay. We call it the three Mm -hmm. to five challenge, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so, a couple of years behind, and at least emotional delay and social interaction kind of delay, right? And sometimes it's organizational, and sometimes it's you know it can come in any area of executive function. So, shifting expectations is about really about helping parents set an appropriate expectation for what a child is developmentally ready to do, not what you think a child should be able to do based on their age, because. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember talking to a mom once who um, she had a nine-year-old son. Today, I, we just keep coming up with nine-year-old boy examples, but this was another nine-year-old son. And she wanted him to be able to go upstairs when she got home from work, take a shower in a time-appropriate manner while she was making dinner so that when he came down upstairs after dinner, dinner after his shower, dinner, he would be down and dinner would be ready. That was what boy. she wanted. Yeah. It was a lovely idea. Isn't that a great mm-hmm. vision, right? Yeah. <laughs> Except for yeah. that there was for nothing realistic. Expecting a lot, for sure. <laughs> right. For a nine-year-old, it's expecting a lot. For a nine-year-old with ADHD who was developmentally more like four or five, mm-hmm. it was an unrealistic expectation. Mm-hmm. So sometimes shifting expectations, not, it's not about lowering the bar. It's about shifting it to really meet our kids where they are and raise the bar from there one step at a time. So part of that, I would see, is educating the parent about that delay and what it looks like so that the parent can start to look at different situations as, oh, no wonder he's he's six, even though his age says nine. Exactly. I often say to parents, okay, so your child is 11 going on what? And they can usually answer pretty quickly, six, seven, eight, you know, it's like when they hear it that way, they get it. And so, you know, and and I had a therapist who said to me once, and after 5 p.m., drop off another two years. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's that's for sure. We encourage parents to, to do what we call take the three to five challenge. That means whenever you've got a behavior that's really stumbling you, that's frustrating you, that you can't figure out how to problem solve, 
look at take the three to five challenge, drop three to five years mm-hmm. and set your expectations appropriately based on where they are. Um, and if you can't figure out what that is, sometimes you look, go look at a classroom of kids three years younger or, you know, go online and look at what kids three years younger mm-hmm. are doing. Because very often we get into that trap we set for ourselves. Well, when my older child was this age, they could do this, right? right. Or when I was this age, I could do this. And we're not dealing with your older child or you or the neighbor down the street. We're dealing with the child in front of you who mm-hmm. is struggling to do this. And there's a legitimate reason they're struggling. Yeah, parent no. the child you have, not the one you wish you did or like other people. Other people. Exactly. Well, you know, and Ross Green, one of the things I love about what he says, we do a lot of work with collaborative parenting, much like he does. But what I, one of the things he says I love is a child will do well when they can. So if a mm-hmm. child is struggling, they're, they're nine times out of ten, they're not doing it to be naughty. They're not doing it to be difficult. They're, they're struggling. And it's our job to sort of understand that and problem solve with them around improving it instead of getting angry at them. Yeah, and it's certainly the more a given problem behavior happens, then it's easy for parents to get more frustrated. How come you aren't listening? What's wrong with you? You just have to do it. And, yeah. Um, yeah, if kids could could do it, they would. Um, you know, I was in a, gro- in a shoe store the other day, and I watched. There was a mom there with, bless her heart, with four kids. And she was one of the, the youngest of the kids who was probably maybe five was was throwing a fit because there was this shoe she really wanted. And the mom said no. And the mom had all these other kids and, and was, was clearly just trying to navigate it all. And this other this little girl was sitting by herself pouting. As I was walking out, I looked at her and, and all I said was sometimes shoe shopping is really hard, isn't it? She looked at me with these big eyes and kind of nodded. And then she told me, mom won't let me have these, but she'll let my brother have his. And, you know, and I looked at her and I said, do you think it's possible you might be able to find a pair of shoes that both you and your mom want? Notice that I'm asking a question, right? We'll we'll come back to that later, too. Mm -hmm. And she paused and then she kind of nodded and her eyes are filled with tears, right? And I don't know what else I said. and, And I left. And I'm confident that that little girl is going to go back to her mom and say, and ask something so that she can find what she wanted because she wasn't being difficult because she was trying to be bad or stubborn or or obstinate. There was something she wanted and she wasn't being heard. Mm -hmm. And that's what, as we walked out, my husband said, what did you say to her? I said, she just needed someone to listen to her for a minute. She just needed to be heard. And this mom was busy with three other kids. I'm not judging her at all. right? Right. It's difficult. And what I love about the model and the phases of parenting is it gives you that reminds you that these are people to these kids and they're not doing it to be naughty. They've got something neurological that's going on that makes it harder for them and they need us to hear that. And kids uh, certainly um, three, four, five, six, sometimes much older than that, don't know the, the words to put uh-huh. their feelings into place. I mean, they're, so they're going to act them out. They're really angry. They're really frustrated. So there's going to be this tantrum, you see. Yeah. And I think it's very easy for many parents to say, you're embarrassing me. Why are you doing this? It, taking it personally as if 
Yes. Tantrum or the child's behavior is directed at them. You're being mean to me. Um, and it's difficult at the time to step back and think, what's what's the child trying to express? And maybe the the idea is acting out feelings. Okay, what's the action say? Well, you feel angry or you feel frustrated. Yeah. It's, I mean, exactly. You know, it's what's the child trying to express or what's the challenge the child is having, right? And very often what we miss is that if this behavior is happening, it's because the child is having a hard time navigating something. They, they have an emotional intensity that's dysregulated. And our kids are dysregulated. Mm-hmm. They are learning to regulate, but they, they're not, they don't have it yet. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And in the ADD world, what happens is we have this tendency to jump to systems. We jump to solutions before really understanding what's going on. But if you slow mm-hmm. down after you've taken aim and you get curious and you, you don't take it personally, that's part of positivity. Thank you for bringing that one up, right? We, we, we mm-hmm. use the term Q-tip, quit taking it personally, right? Um, mm-hmm. if, you, if you set appropriate expectations, if you make sure the brain is, is well-supported in that moment, then you can move to putting a system or a solution in place. But if you start with that, without all that other framework, you end up with very often with a solution that's not going to work, and then you get frustrated, you throw your hands up, your kid throws your hands up, and you feel like, well, I tried that, that didn't work. And the truth is you never really gave it a good shot because you didn't set yourself up for success. And the whole thing of the four phases of the planning in this model is to set yourself up for success so that when you try something, it has a chance of being successful. But then, and that's what step four is, is taking action. But then there's this other piece that's really important, and that's step five, which is to expect that whatever you try is probably not going to work the first time. And that's okay, right? Mm-hmm. And if we start with that expectation we, expectation, we call it rinse and repeat, right? Then we look at it and we say, okay, what did work? What didn't work? What do we want to do differently? You ask those three magic questions. Then you keep working on the same challenge area for a little while until you keep tweaking it till you, you get some success in it. But that mm-hmm. means being patient and not throwing up your hands in disgust, but really allowing yourself to learn from it instead of being aggravated that it didn't work right the first time. And I think that also helps kids develop the idea that it's okay to be wrong or not get a perfect first yes yes making it okay to make mistakes it's another part of positivity right learn by experience and experience is making mistakes and figuring out exactly how to do it differently exactly but we have to set that expectation for ourselves and for our kids and we Mm -hmm. inadvertently set our kids up as perfectionists all the time we don't realize we're doing it but when they fold a shirt and then we refold it because they didn't fold it neatly enough or they put stuff in the dishwasher and then we reload it because they didn't do it right we're Mm -hmm. sending the message that that our way is right and their way is wrong and we really want to try to modify that and allow what they're doing to be good enough so that they can learn to do it better and that's mm-hmm. hard. The other part of the model I want to mention, I know we need to wrap that, but is the step six, if you will. The entire model is circled in self-care. And the other piece that's really important here is that as parents of complex kids, we have got to, t- to take care of ourselves and stop seeing it as some kind of a luxury or as, as something that we'll get to eventually. 
when we care for ourselves, it has this compounding, cascading impact on our families. Not only are we modeling it for our kids and showing them how to care for themselves, which mm-hmm. they're going to need to learn to do, yeah. um, but we're letting them know that we're important, which sets the tone for, for long-term relationships. And we're, there's just so many things. And by taking care of ourselves, we're going to be calmer and more relaxed and less reactive and um, create a better, healthier tone of the home. I had a mom I worked with once who went back to work. She'd been working part-time, and she went back to work full-time and felt really guilty about it, as moms often do, and so she stopped going to the gym. And after about a month, her kids came to her and asked her if she would please start working out again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Because they knew she needed it. See the difference, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But she had a story she was telling herself that she was guilty because she was away from the kids more, so she needed to be home instead of the gym. And the kids were really clear she needed to be at the gym mm-hmm. to be the best mom she could be for them. Yep. So in a nutshell, that's the impact model. You, step one is take aim. Step two is educate or collect information. Step three is to plan. And you plan within those four cornerstones. You look at activating the brain, positivity, shifting expectations, and then you move into systems and structures. And then step four is you take action. And step five, you rinse and repeat. And you try again, and you do it all in the context of self-care. And when we can remember to, to lean into the model when we're struggling, that it gives us a really simple framework to begin to problem-solve with complex kids. And then I can see that as one uses the model, I mean, you can't discuss with a seven-year-old, well, this is what we're doing, and we're in step four or whatever, um, but maybe at... 15 or 16, well, then that's 13 equivalent. In terms of, again, little by little, saying, let's just get some information so that the child starts to learn the model, etc. Exactly. Um, right. It's, it's, that ends yes. up being the self-care, to step yeah. back and say, okay, what's really going on here? And how can I get myself going and plan what's next. Exactly. I mean, ultimately, the goal is to teach the kids to manage themselves by using the same model, which is take aim. What's the change you want to see? You know, my kids get tired of it, but I ask them that all the time. They're now adults, and sometimes they'll even ask themselves. And even sometimes they'll say, don't tell mom, but this is what I really want to do. But once we get clear what we want, we can move towards it. It's very hard to move towards something if you don't know what you're moving towards. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the goal is to, is to help them begin to become their own self-managers. And if you can give them a mechanism for doing that, it can be really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. And we're going to need to take a break at this point. Um, I promise everybody out there listening, we will continue this conversation um, because I think we're just starting to really get into some of the details by age. I've been talking with... Uh, Elaine Taylor Klaus, who is the founder of ImpactParents.com. So, Elaine, it's wonderful to talk with you, and we'll be continuing this conversation. Lovely. Thanks for having me, David.